Welcome to the reading of today's Quad City Times for Thursday, February the 1st, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Teresa Whitaker and myself, Scott Splavik. Now here's Teresa with our first story. Back to the source. Bookstore reverts to Pikyo's family aims for February 12th reopening by Thomas Geyer. The Monday afternoon, the Monday after Super Bowl 58, will see Source Bookstore in downtown Davenport reopen under new but also old management. After three years of being retired and getting in some traveling, Dan Picios is once again the owner of the business. He plans to open February 12th. But it wasn't by choice that the 73-year-old Picios or longtime assistant Cindy Ketchmark, 69, took over the store again. Carter Brown, 26, who bought the store under contract from Picos in 2020, defaulted on his contract and has been evicted. Brown did not return a request for comment by deadline Wednesday. Picos and Ketchmark got the keys to the business and began a huge cleanup effort on Monday, which they expect will continue for two weeks. Ketchmark said a person hired to run the store while she had knee surgery also let a number of vagrants use the basement to live. Blankets were used to partition off the basement into bedrooms. It was the condition of much of the inventory in the basement that left Picios feeling physically sick, he said. I spent 20 years developing a Life magazine inventory, Picios said. The store had 4,000 to 5,000 of the magazines inventoried and stored in a part of the basement that was kept locked, he said. We had them all inventoried on the computer so that when people called and asked for Life magazine on a particular birth date, we could call them up on the computer and then come down here and yank them from the box, Picchio said. The magazines he had worked so hard to collect for resale were scattered on the basement floor or on shelves. Look at this, he said, with a note of disgust in his voice. This was the Life magazine collection. They just dumped them out and dug through them. Picchio's also had a Playboy collection dating back to about 1957, all in order, all bagged, all in perfect condition, and inventoried, so what, that when someone called up and said, we need this issue, we could pull it off for them. Picios bought the store from his father, Robert, in 1999. Dan Picios said the store was started by his grandfather, George Picios, who immigrated to America when he was 10 years old. The Picios family settled in East Moline, where there was a large Greek community. Granddad was 15 when he had to quit school and go to work in a foundry, Dan Picios said. A self-educated man, his grand grandfather opened the store out of his house in East Moline when he was 30 in 1939. George and his wife turned the living room into the bookstore, while they and the four kids lived in the back. He started buying books in his free time until he had enough in the living room that his wife started selling the books for him, Picios said. He kept working for a while and he put it almost 15 years in at the foundry. He named it The Source because books were the source of all knowledge. The store was located in two other places in Davenport before it was moved to its current location on 3rd Street in 1978 to 1979. I'm keeping The Source bookstore on my advertising and my signage, but in the government's eyes I'm doing business as Dan Picchio's Books because I don't want to be associated with his debt, Picchio said of Brown's debts. Even the phone number the business has had for more than 80 years is gone. It's a shame because we've had the same phone number here for more than 80 years, Picchio said. It used to be 48941 before all the other digits were brought in. 
The number in later years became 563-324-8941. While organizing the store, Picos also is getting internet reconnected, getting his business identification and licenses set up with the state and federal governments, and getting his business insurance in order. While running the business again was not in his plans, Picchio said he has gotten in all of his traveling, so he was looking for something to occupy some of his time. He takes care of his 93-year-old father also. I didn't think it would be running the store again, he said. Our next article is entitled, Stoltenberg Declines to Run for Re-Election. It's written by Sarah Watson. Luana Stoltenberg, a first-term state lawmaker representing Northwest Davenport, announced Wednesday she would not run for re-election this fall. Stoltenberg, a Republican best known for her anti-abortion advocacy, very narrowly won the House District 81 seat in 2022 after a lengthy series of recounts. The primary for this fall's state races will be June the 4th and the general election November the 5th. Candidates for state and federal offices must file their paperwork for the June primary between February 26th and March 15th. At least one Democrat has announced intentions to run for the seat. Stoltenberg, an author, made her opposition to abortion a key focus of her campaign and time as a legislator. Stoltenberg, who often spoke of her own experience being unable to have kids after three abortions, sponsored a bill that would ban most abortions from the moment of conception. It has been an honor to serve the people of District 81 in the state of Iowa, Stoltenberg said in a news release. I am grateful for the opportunity and I have enjoyed my time in the State House immensely. I have prayed on this decision and feel it is what is best for me and my family. I will continue to work to protect unborn babies from abortion and creating a culture of life in Iowa and across the country. Stoltenberg served on the local government, Veterans Affairs, and Natural Resources Committees. Luana has been a pleasure to work with in the Iowa House. House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, said in a news release, I appreciate her passion and know she will continue to make the state of Iowa and her community a better place in every way she can. Stoltenberg declining to run for re-election means the seat will be open to another new lawmaker in the fall. So far, school board and local board, local labor leader Dan Gosa has announced his intention to seek the Democratic nomination for the seat. MPW confirms cybersecurity incident. This is an article by David Hoddle. Muscatine Power and Water has been the victim of a cybersecurity incident, the company announced Monday. Addressing the incident is MPW's first priority, and it will work through final resolution, which is expected to be weeks from now, the announcement stated. According to a news release, MPW discovered a cybersecurity incident impacting its corporate network environment Friday evening. Erica Cox, MPW Director of Customer Technology Experience, confirmed it was a ransomware attack and that it resulted in internet services for MT MPW customers going offline Friday evening. Internet services were restored early Saturday. Cox said MPW was business as usual by Monday morning. Because we have some really good monitoring and alert systems in place, our staff was allowed to start investigating this early on, Cox said. It ended up being a huge benefit to MPW and our customers. 
MPW defined cyber events as malicious and intended to cripple and take down a company for weeks. The company is working with a team of computer forensic experts to understand the extent of the incident and to restore operations. It is reported that after a short disruption to the corporate system, all business systems have been restored to normal. Cox commented that there is an active investigation ongoing and some information has to remain confidential. She said both state and federal law enforcement agencies have been notified and they are involved in the investigation. We understand anytime there is a cyber event that is what consumers are most concerned about is their personal information, she said when asked if customer information had been compromised. At this point in the investigation, that is one of the focal points that is being investigated very thoroughly. She said that the attack had targeted the corporate network and that the internet service is secure and MPW internet customers can be assured that home networks and business networks were not targeted as part of the attack. Brandy Olson, MPW General Counsel and Director of Legal, Regulatory and People Services, said at no time was there any threat to the electrical or water systems. She said they operate separately from the corporate network by design to add an extra layer of protection. We have had nothing to this extent in the past, Olson said. As a utility, we are targeted regularly. It's an industry issue. Utilities or any corporate network are targeted very frequently. The release said nothing is more important to MPW than allowing its systems to operate seamlessly and limiting any service interruptions to customers. While these types of situations have become all too common nationwide, we recognize the significance of this event and have quickly taken the appropriate steps to address it, the release said. Our comprehensive assessment is ongoing and may span several weeks. Rest assured that we are committed to sharing more information as circumstances allow. The company also thanked its employees, many of whom came in during their time off to address the issue. Cox said if additional information that impacts customers is discovered, it will be released. Man killed in shooting identified. This is written by Anthony Watt. Authorities have released the identity of a man shot to death Friday in a Davenport home. The shooting happened at about 9 p.m. in the 7200 block of Volcard Volcardison Avenue. According to the Davenport Police Department, the man killed was Jevin E. Giddings, age 26. Giddings' brother, Wade S. Giddings, age 41, faces a charge of first-degree murder in relation to the shooting, according to court records. The brothers lived together at the Volcardison Avenue address. After police read Wade Giddings his Miranda rights, he told investigators he and Jevin Giddings were fighting and arguing that night, court record state. Wade Giddings waited until his brother was out of sight in the kitchen, then got a firearm. Wade Giddings told police he then confronted Jevin Giddings in a bedroom and shot him multiple times, court record state. Afterward, Wade Giddings did not render assistance to his brother or call for help. Another family member was in the home and called 911 after the shooting, court records state. Wade Giddings has a $250,000 cash-only bond, according to the Scott County Jail. He remained in custody Wednesday. The courts have set his next court hearing for February the 6th. And next, we have person found dead after mobile home fire. It's written by Sarah Watson. 
A person was found dead after a Davenport mobile home fire on Tuesday. According to a news release from the Davenport Fire Department, a postal carrier delivering mail called 911 Tuesday afternoon to report he could see smoke coming from a mobile home in the 3700 block of West Locust Street. Fire crews responded about at about 2.18 p.m. First arriving crews found a mobile home with heavy smoke and fire coming from the front portion of the residence that was beginning to spread to a nearby home, according to the news release. Fire crews extinguished the fire in about 10 minutes. During the search of the mobile home, an individual was found dead. The cause of the fire and death are under investigation, according to the release. Davenport sent three engines, two ladder trucks, one district chief for an initial response of 15 personnel. And murder trial set. This is written by Lisa Hammer. A Kelowna man charged with aggravated battery and murder is set to have a bench trial before Circuit Judge Daniel Dalton the week of April 29, 2024. Rasan M. Strader, age 40, faces murder charges in connection with the battering death of 14-month-old girl. Kelowna police were notified January 27, 2022, of an aggravated battery to a child that happened in Kelowna by the Moline Police Department, which took the initial report, believing that the battery had occurred in Moline. An investigator from Kelowna met with Moline investigators. Both police departments conducted interviews, and Strader was initially charged with aggravated battery to a child. Police obtained a search warrant for the Kelowna home, and the Illinois State Police Crime Scene Unit processed the residence for evidence. The child was initially flown to OSF St. Francis Hospital in Peoria, where she died. Strader is being held in the Henry County Jail on $1 million bond. Dates for the trial were released on Monday. And government bridge to close Friday for repairs. This comes from Grace Kinnicutt. The government bridge between Davenport and the Rock Island Arsenal is set to be closed Friday morning for emergency road repairs. The closure is expected to take place from 8.30 to 11 a.m. The bridge will only be closed to vehicular traffic. Appropriate signage will be used to warn and direct traffic during this time, the Arsenal said in a press release Wednesday. The bridge is also set to close for four months this spring and summer to allow for a roundabout to be installed at the Davenport side of the bridge at the intersection of LeClaire and 2nd Streets. That closure is expected to start March 18th. Okay, we're going to go back to the front page with an article by Tom Barton. Gender Identity Bill Fails. Proposal sought to remove protections from civil rights law. This is out of Des Moines. Iowa House lawmakers will not advance a bill that would have removed gender identity protections from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. All three members of a House Judiciary Subcommittee said they will not sign off on moving the bill forward following roughly an hour of testimony from transgender Iowans, school safety advocates, attorneys, and civil rights activists. Individuals packed a committee room Wednesday to decry a House Republican proposal to change the way transgender Iowans are protected under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. The proposed legislation, which opponents called hideous, vile, offensive, and hateful, 
would amend the Iowa Civil Rights Act by removing gender identity as a protected class and by adding gender dysphoria to disabilities covered by the act. Amy Wichendahl, a Hiawatha City Council member who is Iowa's first openly transgender elected official, told lawmakers that by considering the bill, they were entertaining making Iowa the first state in the country to repeal civil rights protections. You seem to think that being trans is some kind of ideology, so I will say it plain, Wichendahl said. There is no such thing as transgenderism. There is only transgender people. We are human beings. We are American citizens. We are Iowans. And we do not deserve this abuse that we are getting from our government. Created in 1965, the Iowa Civil Rights Act prevents discrimination based on identifying characteristics like age, race, color, religion, national origin, or disability. The act was amended in 2007 to add sexual orientation and gender identity. House File 2082, introduced by Iowa State lawmaker Jeff Shipley, a Republican from Birmingham, would instead add to the act's covered disabilities gender dysphoria, which the American Psychiatric Association defines as psychological distress that results when an individual has a gender identity that is different from their sex at birth. Shipley said he introduced the bill to examine Iowa's civil rights framework and ensure it's working as intended, arguing the inclusion of gender identity in Iowa law is not well defined. There exist many unanswered legal questions and unsettled matters of law, Shipley testified during the hearing. This ambiguity is causing problems. Injustice is occurring under the status quo, and injustice is likely to persist into the future if left unchanged. He added there also exists a harsh and aggressive retaliatory environment surrounding the discussion of gender identity, which completely nullifies the spirit of Iowa's Civil Rights Code. The question, he said lawmakers need to clarify, is how does someone establish themselves as a member of this protected class? He argued current definition of gender identity in Iowa Code is a circular definition, meaning it defines absolutely nothing about what this word actually means. Members of the subcommittee, however, worried the bill violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and would actually bestow extra rights by classifying gender dysphoria as a covered disability. House Majority Leader, Leader Matt Winshittle, a Republican of Missouri Valley, said the fact that the subcommittee chose not to advance the bill is a good indication that its ideas are not going to move through the committee process or receive a vote on the House floor. Representative John Wills, a Republican of Spirit Lake, who sat on the subcommittee and declined to advance the bill, said the legislation is effectively dead. I'm extremely happy to see that by unanimous vote rejected what was extremely hateful legislation, which would have taken the clock back 15 years in our state code and would have specifically targeted some of the most marginalized people in our state, said Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, who also sat on the subcommittee. Advocates for transgender people expressed their vehement opposition to the proposal, banging on the door of the committee room and shouting and chanting profanities at Shipley in the hallway outside the committee room following the meeting. Transgender Iowans said the proposal would not provide the same legal protections to transgender Iowans as the current Civil Rights Act. They noted that not all transgender people are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Proponents argued likening gender dysphoria to a disability would add consistency to how the law is applied, 
and keep transgender Iowans protected under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Shipley claimed his bill could expand legal protections for transgender Iowans because disability has tremendous legal protection. Annie Sarcone, director of the Des Moines Queer Youth Resource Center, criticized the bill's categorization of gender dysphoria as a disability. Gender dysphoria and being trans isn't a disability. I'm not dis disabled, Sarconing said. Shifting gender identity to a different code will actually make it harder to ensure protection. And quite frankly, it's disrespectful to people who have a disability who need that protection. Ankeny High School student Elliot Sutton, 17, identifies as non-binary. Sutton has not been diagnosed with gender dysphoria and feared the bill could lead to discrimination and denial of securing student loans and health coverage for gender transition treatments. If this bill passes, I probably am not going to stay in Iowa because I don't want to live in a state that passes legislation that makes my life nearly impossible to live safely in our community, they said. Statehouse Republicans in the past two legislative sessions have passed a series of new laws impacting transgender and other LGBTQ Iowans, including a ban on gender transition treatments and surgeries for minors, a ban on the teaching of gender identity or sexual orientation through sixth grade, a ban on transgender students using K through 12 school bathrooms that align with their gender identity by requiring students to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender at birth, and a ban on transgender girls competing in girls' sports. The Cedar Rapids Civil Rights Commission issued a statement Wednesday strongly opposing the bill, saying it would strip transgender Iowans of vital protections from discrimination in employment, housing, education, public accommodations, and credit practices. We oppose legislation that does not represent the values of our organizations, our communities, and our state, the commission said. We support policies that promote inclusion and ensure the rights of all people in all aspects of life. This bill not only violates fundamental Iowan values of fairness and equality, but also inflicts demonstrable harm on individuals, communities, and our state's economic well-being. Opponents argue the legislation will exacerbate Iowans' workforce recruitment and retention issues. The report by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation concluded that companies with LGBTQ inclusive policies have higher employee retention rates and earn more revenue. It also outlined the steps those companies are taking to build an inclusive workplace. They argue the bill damages Iowa's image and reputation, will lead to an increase in depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation among LGBTQ youth, and lead to an increase in discrimination and violence against transgender Iowans. Shipley, the bill's author, called the subcommittee meeting the start of a conversation. That's a lot of in There's a lot of interest in this topic, he told reporters following the subcommittee. There has been for a number of years. There are very relevant matters of law that need to be settled, and so this topic is not going away. He said those who oppose the bill and other legislation targeting transgender Iowans have created a retaliatory environment. As Shipley left the committee room, some members of the crowd raised their middle fingers and began chanting profanities at him. This behavior is being encouraged, Shipley said. They want to bully people into submission, and it's working on a lot of Republican lawmakers. They're too afraid of the mob, and that's unfortunate. Now, there's an article here on the front page entitled, Leonard Skinner Talks Whitey's Shakes and Show. 
and it's an interview with a couple of the members of the Leonard Skinner band. I won't read the entire interview, but I'll read the first part here. Uh, this is written by Gannon Hannibold of the Quad City Times. With multiple platinum records like Pronounced and Second Helping, and ubiquitous singles like Freebird and Sweet Home Alabama, Leonard Skinner is arguably the most influential southern rock band ever. The Jacksonville-born group is going on tour this year with fellow rock icons ZZ Top, and they'll be at Vibrant Arena at the Mark in Moline on April the 13th. The group's last founding member, guitarist Gary Rossington, died in March of 2023. In his place on stage is Damon Johnson, who has played with acts like Alice Cooper and Thin Lizzy. We got a chance to interview lead singer Johnny Van Zant, the younger brother of Ronnie Van Zant, the band's original frontman who died in a plane crash in 1977, and Ricky Medlock, the former lead guitarist for Blackfoot. Here's what they had to say. And it says, a little side note, this interview has been consolidated and edited for clarity and cohesion. The interviews with Medlock and Van Zant were held separately. So first, you guys were here in 2022. What kind of memories do you have associated with the Quad Cities? Johnny Van Zant says, I remember that gig totally because it was a great show. People have always been good to us up there. I also remember going to, is it White's? Whitey's? Johnny Van Zant, yeah. A buddy of mine told me about that years ago. I guess that's a staple there. I ended up hitting it up because it's got great shakes. Ricky Medlock says, I'm an ice cream freak, and I remember, if I remember correctly, what we got was incredible. Johnny Van, Dant, Van Zant, excuse me, laughing. We were all on the plane drinking and eating different things from Whitey's. This time around, you guys will be here with ZZ Top. What have you learned from your experience playing with them? Johnny Van Zant says, we played with those guys so many dates that I can't remember how many. We're not only playing shows together, we're just good friends. They're just a great group of, of guys. And the, the uh, interview goes on and on, but I just wanted to throw that in there about Whitey's, one of the best ice cream places in the state of Iowa. And here's an uh, article entitled, Amazon Touts High Speed of Prime Delivery. Amazon delivered packages to its Prime customers at the fastest speed ever in 2023, the retailer said Tuesday, thanks to better inventory placement, a new regionalization model for shipments, and more same-day warehouses. The company indicated in public announcements and corporate earnings calls last year that packages were arriving faster on the doorsteps of Prime members who pay $139 per year or $14.99 per month for speedy deliveries and other perks. In a blog post on Tuesday, Doug Harrington, CEO of Amazon's Worldwide Stores business, provided more details on parcel shipments made during the holiday shopping season, which saw strong consumer spending despite price increases and high borrowing costs. In the last three months of 2023, Harrington said Amazon increased the number of items it delivered the same day or overnight in the U.S. by more than 65% year over year. More than 70% of Prime orders arrived same day or the next across the Atlantic in the U.K., 
Overall, Amazon said it delivered 7 billion items with same or next day shipping last year. The company declined to provide comparable figures on shipping data from 2022. The e-commerce giant has created, or excuse me, has credited speedier deliveries to improvements in inventory management and growth in its same-day delivery sites. The company currently has 55 of these sites in metro areas across the U.S. with plans to add more in the coming years. Faster shipping is also being driven by a new operations network, which splits the country up into smaller regions and ships items from those areas. The new model, which follows a pandemic boom in the company's logistics footprint and subsequent cutbacks, also helps Amazon cut down on costs since packages travel a shorter distance and have fewer touch points. Sarah Matthew, Amazon's Vice President for Delivery Experience, said in an interview that the online retailer is continuously analyzing its regions, including the buildings and inventories within them, and plans to refine it to better serve customers. But despite Amazon's focus on speed, some rural Prime customers have complained about slower delivery speeds. The company relies on independent contractors as well as carriers like UPS to ship orders to customers. It's also been recruiting small businesses that can help it deliver directly to hard-to-reach rural areas. When asked about rural deliveries, Matthew said the company is paying attention to anecdotal customer experiences but doesn't see a general trend showing a slowdown. Amazon's focus on speed has put it in the crosshairs of labor advocates who argue the company's fast-paced warehouses lead to more injuries among warehouse workers. The company's latest data from 2022 shows the rate of injuries or illness that occurred among Amazon's U.S. workforce fell that year, but it was still higher than it was in the year 2020. Okay, I'm going to turn to today's obituaries. Warren Orvin Voss, age 77, of Muscatine, formerly of New Liberty, passed away peacefully surrounded by family on Tuesday, January 30th at the Clarissa C. Cook Hospice House in Bettendorf. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 2nd at Bentley Funeral Home in Durant. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd at the funeral home. Burial will take place in Durant Cemetery. Memorials may be given to Shriners Hospitals for Children or the Durant Ambulance Service. Online condolences may be left at www.bentleyfuneralhome.com. Warren was born on February 13, 1946, in Davenport. He was the oldest son of Orvin and Harriet Cromer Voss. He graduated from Bennett High School with the class of 1964. He graduated from Iowa State University in 1972 with a bachelor's degree in animal science. He was a member of the U.S. Army and served in the veterinary service while in Vietnam. While stationed in Washington, D.C., he met Patricia Kaler. They were married in Silver Spring, Maryland on February 17, 1973. They then returned to Iowa, where Warren farmed with his parents and brothers for 30 years. Warren was a 50-year member of the Bennett Legion and was a loyal member of Durant Legion for many years. In retirement, Warren enjoyed living on the Mississippi River, watching river barges, the Eagles, railroad, and much more. His humor, cooking, and love of a good fire. His grandchildren always Warren's snack cabinet and his affinity for a good treat. He will be missed by all. 
In 2001, Warren received a heart transplant at the University of Wisconsin. The generous donor family lived in northern Wisconsin and will forever hold a special place in the Voss family's hearts for the gift of 22 additional years with our beloved husband, father, and friend. Warren also survived several other serious medical conditions which spoke to his determination and strength. The greatest joy in his life was his family and friends whom he loved so dearly. He was a loving husband, father, grandfather, brother, uncle, and friend. He will be missed by all who knew him. Special thanks to them for their, oh, his weekly Wednesday crew were at the top of his list. A special thanks to them for the ongoing friendship over the years. He is survived by his wife of nearly 51 years, Tricia, and three children, Emily Wilcom of New Liberty, Kevin Voss of Muscatine, and Kathleen Voss of Cedar Rapids. Seven grandchildren, Madison, Jake, Ellery, Audrey, Louis, Claire, and Warren. His brother, Russell Voss of Illinois City, Illinois, and six nieces and their families. He was preceded in death by his parents, his brother, and sister-in-law, Richard and Sue Voss, and nephew, Benjamin Voss. Robert Jacoby, 93, of Wheatland, formerly of Calamus, passed away Monday, January 29th, with family by his side at Wheatland Manor. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 5th, at the Christian Free Lutheran Church in Wheatland, with burial at Rose Hill Cemetery, Calamus. The family will greet relatives and friends at a luncheon following in the church basement. Robert Herman Jacoby was born February 21, 1930, in Chicago, to William and Gertrude Luther Jacoby. After graduating from Calamus High School, he entered the U.S. Air Force, where he served as a chaplain's assistant during the Korean conflict. He married his high school sweetheart, Geraldine Elaine Jerry Stuland, on March 19, 1950, at Ellington Air Force Base in Houston. Following his military service, the couple resided in rural Calamus, where they raised their five children. Bob worked for many years as a seed corn salesman for Pioneer Hybrid. Early in his working years, he and his dad operated Bill and Bob's country-style slaughtering on the family farm. He also drove school bus number one for Calamus Wheatland School District for many years. Jerry preceded him in death on February 17, 2023. Excuse me. He was a charter member of the Christian Free Lutheran Church in Wheatland, where he served as deacon. Bob had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament and was a proud member of the Gideons, placing many Bibles over the years. He loved spending time with his grandchildren, reading and drawing pictures. He'll be remembered for always saying, beautiful day, as a greeting. Surviving are children Randy Jacoby of Wheatland, David Jacoby, Calamus, Jeff Jacoby of Calamus, Catherine Rowling of Wheatland, Jay Jacoby of West Des Moines, grandchildren Brooke DeLulio, Caleb Jacoby, Drew Jacoby, Justin Jacoby, Kara Natterman, Megan Litcher, Joshua Jacoby, Courtney Osier, Krista Blackburn, Kendra Long, Daniel Jacoby, Allison Gerard, and Luke Jacoby. 33 great children, two great great grandchildren, and one on the way a sister, Julie Wolf, nieces and nephews. In addition to his wife, he was preceded in death by an infant daughter, Carolyn Liu, siblings Eleanor Cron and William Jacoby. Arrangements are in the care of Schultz Funeral Home of DeWitt. Condolences may be expressed at www.schultzfuneralhomes.com. 
Now we'll turn to the opinion page, and I'll read an opinion written by Matthew Iglesias, who is a columnist for Bloomberg News and a co-founder of and former columnist for Vox. He writes the show Boring, Slow Boring Blog and is author of One Billion Americans. And his opinion piece is entitled Don't Let Trump and Biden Abandon Helpful Debates. One of the few bipartisan traditions left in American politics is hating on the presidential debates. They're never substantive enough. The moderators always intervene too much or too little, and they have little effect on voters. Who needs them? So reports that President Joe Biden and Donald Trump are contemplating skipping this year's edition put on by the Commission on Presidential Debates every four years since 1988 are hardly surprising. Trump didn't participate in any Republican primary debates either, and the Republican National Committee withdrew from the debate commission two years ago. Biden has declined to commit to its 2024 schedule. It is left to me to, well, if I can't quite defend the debates, I can at least say this. We'll miss them when they're gone. The only thing worse than presidential debates may be a campaign without them. Of course, American democracy long predates the tradition of televised presidential debates, and the tradition itself had a rough start. Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy famously faced off in 1960, but Lyndon Johnson saw no need to risk a debate in 1964. Nixon, with a commanding lead and embattled by his prior debate experience, likewise declined to debate in 1968 and 1972. It wasn't until 1976, with a matchup between President Gerald Ford and challenger Jimmy Carter, that the modern debate era began. The tradition was truly entrenched eight years later by incumbent Ronald Reagan, who agreed to debate Walter Mondale in 1984. The debates had no real upside for Reagan, who was on his way to a landslide win, and he was widely seen to have stumbled during the first debate. Once he established the norm, however, it was off to the races. The Commission on Presidential Debates was formed in 1987 and has sponsored debates in the last nine presidential elections. Now the burden is on presidents to explain why they can't debate instead of on the commission to say why they should. None of this is to say that these debates have been grand exchanges of ideas in the tradition of Lincoln and Douglas in 1858. Yet, for all their flaws, the debates do offer something magical. There are shared national political experience. Devoted partisans on both sides will watch, along with the tiny handful of high-information swing voters who actually pay, pay close attention to political campaigns. One fact often obscured by America's highly polarized two-party politics is that the U.S. is a very large and diverse country. Both party coalitions include lots of people who have significant disagreements with each other. The easiest way to manage those disagreements is to keep your partisans focused on the negative aspects of the other side, often by serving up highly caricatured portrayals of your opponents. At this point, it almost seems as if the majority of Democrats and Republicans are convinced that the other party's nominee is senile. <laughs> to gain, say, that impression and inform voters of the rivals' actual positions, put the two candidates side by side on a debate stage. 
Biden partisans could watch Trump talk in uninterrupted stretches and vice versa. That's very unlikely to dramatically change anyone's opinion, but it would be a small step toward a healthier society with something more resembling a consensus reality. The problem is that the media fragmentation that makes debates valuable also makes them increasingly vulnerable. The three TV network monopoly had downsides, but it gave national politics some grounding and focus. In today's landscape, almost nothing short of a debate can provide that common focus. At the same time, politicians have less to lose from ducking debates because they no longer need the cooperation of the mainstream media to get their message out. The difficulty of getting out of getting the tradition off the ground was always the fear that the front runner would regard it as too risky. The flip side is that ducking a debate would also be a risk. Nobody wants to look chicken. Debates, for all their flaws, are a rare opportunity to get out the information silo get out of the information silos and make everyone who pays attention to the news watch and argue about more or less the same thing. That in and of itself obviously doesn't end partisanship or polarization, but it's something, and if it fades away, we'll miss it. And again, this was written by Matthew Iglesias, a columnist for Bloomberg News. Okay, we have another column here, the Another View out of the Washington Post. Dreamers should keep legal status. Congress still hasn't agreed to a solution for young people who are truly Americans. Congress's border deal talks might be ongoing, but in one essential area, legislators are moving backward. The dreamers, undocumented immigrants who came to this country as children, have been left out of the conversation. Since the first version of the DREAM Act was introduced almost a quarter century ago, support for the young people who are Americans in every sense but the legal one has been a bright spot of bipartisanship amid acrimony. Almost every immigration compromise that legislators have contemplated has included a path to citizenship for these three million or so individuals. Yet today, as lawmakers scramble to secure the votes for a package focused on security and asylum, the issue has scarcely been mentioned. Meanwhile, trouble in the courts leaves the fate of the Dreamers as uncertain as ever. President Barack Obama's program to help the Dreamers, called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, was supposed to be a temporary solution to a problem Congress would eventually solve. By granting work authorization and immunity from deportation to undocumented immigrants who arrived in the United States as minors, met certain educational requirements, and presented no threat to public safety, the executive action offered a cohort of motivated non-citizens the opportunity to grow freely in the only nation they've known. The idea was that legislators would transform this reprieve into a road for dreamers to become citizens. Instead, Congress did nothing. The half a million or so current DACA recipients must renew their status every two years, while approximately 2.5 million dreamers brought here too late to qualify for DACA remain at constant risk of being sent back to somewhere they've scarcely lived. It gets worse. Even those 500,000 current DACA recipients could lose could soon lose their status. A federal judge in Texas recently ruled President Biden's reinstatement of DACA a violation of federal law. Recipients can keep their status as litigation continues, but the conservative U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit will hear the case next. 
The issue isn't only that this situation is unjust. Leaving the dreamers to languish is a tremendous waste of talent, enterprise, and devotion to the United States. Two dreamers have won Rhodes Scholarships. Hundreds are doctors and medical students. Thousands work in health care and other capacities. 340,000 were deemed essential workers during the pandemic. At the very least, Congress could codify DACA so that the current recipients can keep their status, can stay, as advocates refer to it, DACA-mented, forever without worry. Even the federal judge who struck down DACA in September recognized that these young immigrants have come to rely on the program. The country also relies on them. Now flip over to sports, and we'll go through what's on TV today. College men's college basketball, 6 p.m. on CBS Sports Network, Delaware at Williams and Mary, 6 p.m. on ESPN2, Tulane at SMU, and at 6 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Longwood at High Point. 7:30 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, Wisconsin at Nebraska. And on the Pac-12 Network at 7.30 p.m., it's California at Arizona. 8 p.m. on the CBS Sports Network, Sam Houston at Western Kentucky. Uh, ESPN2 at 8 p.m., it's Stanford at Arizona State. And at 8 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Youngstown State at Wright State. 9.30 p.m., Oregon at USC on ESPN. Uh, and also 9.30, Oregon State at UCLA on the Pac-12 Network. 10 p.m. on CBS Sports Network at San Diego at San Francisco. And on ESPNU at 10 p.m., it's UC Davis at UC Santa Barbara. In college women's basketball on the ACC Network, 5 p.m., Virginia at Virginia Tech. On the Big Ten Network at 5 p.m., Wisconsin at Ohio State. 6 p.m. on the SEC Network, it's Tennessee at Georgia. 7 p.m. on the ACC Network. It's North Carolina at North Carolina State. ESPN at 7.30 p.m. It's Baylor at Texas. And at 8 p.m. on the SEC Network, it's Alabama at Arkansas. In the NFL, at 6 p.m. on ESPN, it's the NFL Pro Bowl Skills Showdown. And in hockey... On the NH or excuse me, on ESPN two at five PM, it's the All Star Player Draft. Oh, sorry. We're gonna go to an article on girls wrestling. Iowa State tournament storylines to watch. The Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union Girls Wrestling Tournament begins Thursday at Extreme Arena in Coralville, with four hundred forty eight girls chasing the top prize across fourteen weight classes. Wrestling begins at 10 a.m. Thursday. The finals are set for Friday night. There is no shortage of storylines for the second-ever IGH-SAU-sanctioned gathering. Pleasant Valley standout Abigail Myrer won it all as a freshman last year and is seated number one at 120 pounds. Myrer boasts a 42-2 record. Two freshmen will challenge third-seeded Avea Smith, whose record is 40-1, of Lewis Central, and number four seed Camille Schultz, whose record is 48-2, of Waverly Shellrock. They have announced their presence with authority. Schultz is in the top half of the bracket with Myrer. Vinton Shellsburg senior Bree Swenson, whose record is 55-3, is seeded second. Topped by senior Hannah Rogers at 125 pounds, Bettendorf will have entrance in eight of the 14 brackets. 
Rogers is looking for a title after finishing second as a junior in 2023. Rogers has won 40 of 42 matches and is seated third behind Molly Allen, whose record is 27-0. Of Oakland, Riverside, and LaPorte City Union's Jillian Worthen, whose record is 24-0. The Bulldogs have two number four seeds in senior Lexi Peterson at 130 pounds with a record of 37-6, and, and sophomore Taylor Strife at 115 pounds, whose record is 37-5. and five. Both placed third at state last season. The other Bulldogs are freshman Olivia Hernandez, number seven at 100 pounds, whose record is 36 and six. Sophomore Nessa Selmani, at number 11 at 120 pounds, with a record of 34 and 12. Senior Morgan Strife, who's number 12 at 135 pounds, with a record of 35 and nine. And junior Izzy Giza, who's number 18 at 140 pounds with a record of 34 and 11. And senior Emily C, who's number 28 at 110 pounds with a record of 29 and 15. Bentendorf rolled to the region six title last weekend in Cedar Falls with 230.5 points. In the final poll of the regular season, the Bulldogs were ranked ninth. Davenport is sending a quartet of wrestlers to Extreme Arena, led by unbeaten 145 pounder Greta Bruss. Her record is 35-0, and, and she's seeded third. It's a gauntlet of, at 145, with the top seven seeds all having at least 32 wins and no more than two losses. Mari Manns, with a record of 28-2 from Council Bluffs, Lewis Central, is the top seed. Ankeny's Dana Cleveland, whose record is 37-1, is seeded second. Joining Bruss from Davenport are senior Jadalyn Daly, who's number 13 at 125, with a record of 25 and nine. Junior J.C. Mason, who's number 26 at 105, with a record of 25 and nine. And junior Hannah Park, who's number 31 at 115, with a record of 34 and 12. North Scott is represented by junior Madison Andrews, who's number 31 at 190, with a record of 21 and 18. Freshman Sage Zizlandini, who's number 31 at 235, with a record of 11 and eight and senior Harmony Hansel, who's number 32 at 130 pounds with a record of 17-9. PV has a strong contender at 115 and senior Caitlin Ryder, who is 27-3 and, and seated sixth. Senior Cassie Pustian, number 29 at 145 pounds, whose record is 33-11, also will represent the Spartans. West Liberty senior Dione Garcia Vasquez is seated fourth at 140 with a 41-1 mark, and her sister Sylvia, a junior, is seated ninth at 115 with a 27-4 record. Dione's only loss this year is to top-seeded Chiara Giumessi of Waverly Shell Rock. Giumessi, a University of Iowa commit, is 42-0 after going 48-0 last season and winning the title at 140. Wilton Jr. Cadence Boom takes a 28-7 record and number 8 seed into action at 135. Wapolo sophomore Kennedy Helsher, who's ranked number 26 with a record of 25-13, and 13, opens against Bettendorf's Hernandez in the 100-pound bracket. Durant Sr. Laney Shalangoski has had a spotless senior season. The number 3 seed at 105 pounds has won all 37 of her matches heading into the weekend. Layla Phillips, whose record is 38-3 from Mason City, and Western Iowa's Casey Miller, with a 31-0 record, are the top two seeds at 105. 
Like Shalangoski, both are seniors. The top five seeds at 155 pounds have a combined record of 176 and 5. Top seeded Skylar Slade of Southeast Polk is 43 and 0. Emily Spurgeon of Pella is 41 and 0, and she enters as the number four seed. The field is so deep, Wabalo senior Tatum Wolford is seeded eighth, and she has not lost this season in 37 matches. Central DeWitt senior Madison Edens, with a record of 22 and 8, is seeded number 15 in the bracket that also includes number 16, Elsie Lewis, a junior from Muscatine, whose record is 36 and 6, and number 32, Lesset Kiroz, a senior from Columbus WMU, whose record is 14 and 13. Some quick headlines from the sports page. Caitlin Clark climbs scoring list in win. Hawkeye standout scores 35 to become number two all-time scorer in the Iowa women's game where they defeated uh, Northwestern 110 to 74. And in uh, Iowa football, Lester officially hired as Iowa offensive coordinator. Former Western Michigan football coach Tim Lester was hired Wednesday to turn around Iowa's underperforming offense. Kirk Ferentz replaces his uh, son Brian with uh, Lester. Uh, 46-year-old Lester spent a year as a senior analyst for the Green Bay Packers after Western Michigan fired him in 2022. And if I got a few minutes here, I want to read this article. Agency defends its investigation. This has to do with the gambling probe in Iowa. The agency that oversees the enforcement of Iowa's gambling law instituted a statement, issued a statement Wednesday, defending its investigation into sports wagering by athletes at Iowa and Iowa State. Defense attorneys for three former or current Iowa State athletes wrote in court documents filed last week that there was no probable cause for the searches into online wagering activities that resulted in criminal charges and lost NCAA eligibility. The State Department of Public Safety said in its statement that it believed its methods stood up to the legal scrutiny. The department traditionally does not comment on active investigations or litigations in an effort to ensure these matters are appropriately addressed by our justice system rather than the media, the statement said. We believe the evidence was obtained in a constitutionally permissible manner. Ultimately, it is up to the courts to decide. Attorneys for former ISU football player Isaiah Lee and Jarrell Brock and wrestler Panero Johnson wrote in motions for discovery that special agents for the State Division of Criminal Investigation, which is under the Department of Public Safety, acted improperly. Lee, Brock, and Johnson were among about two dozen Iowa State and Iowa athletes criminally charged. Those three each face a felony charge of identity theft and an aggravated misdemeanor charge of tampering with records. Most of the Iowa and Iowa State athletes who were charged pleaded guilty to underage gambling, paid fines, and had identity theft charges dropped. The identity theft charges stemmed from athletes registering accounts on mobile sports betting apps under different names, usually a relative. Lee's attorney, Van Plum, cited depositions in which DCI special agents acknowledged placing a geofence around Iowa and Iowa State athletic facilities that have restricted access and found evidence of open wagering apps. Plum said there was no reasonable cause for the search and that the athlete's privacy was invaded. That brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today.
Thursday, February 1st, 2024. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone has been Teresa Whitaker. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.